The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. All right, Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. As you turn in there, I shared this with you last week that that this is the spot in the book of Hebrews where there's a major transition. From chapter 3, verse 1, all the way to chapter 10, verse 18, that's the middle section of Hebrews that deals with sort of the bulk of the argument that Jesus is greater, superior, truer, better than the Mosaic law. And so for chapters and chapters, really seven and a half chapters, we saw how Jesus is better than, than Moses. He's better than the Levitical priesthood. He's better than a covenant. He, rather, he mediates a better covenant. He, he's, he, he offers a better sacrifice and a better promise. And it's really been a lot of explanation, a, a lot of doctrine, a lot of creed, a lot of instruction, a lot of precept. And then right here now in verse 19 of chapter 10, the tone of the entire book shifts. And the author from this point to the end is focusing on uh, a call to faith and a call to endurance. He goes from doctrine to duty, from creed to conduct, from precept to practice, from instruction to exhortation. And so now it's sort of the very, the very practical handholds of how you and I are to live in light of this, of this, of this Christ who is truer, greater, and better than the old covenant. He is our, our hope. He is God in the flesh. He is our Savior. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, in the, in, in the book of Hebrews, we begin to look at how it is we live in light of these amazing truths that the author has been unpacking for ten and a half chapters. Beginning in verse 19 of chapter 10. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a, the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, full of assurance, of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from the evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope, Without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Several years ago during COVID, I was living in the, in the state of Wisconsin when it first started. And when, I, I don't know exactly what was happening in, in Oregon, but I'm sure it was very similar to what was happening in the state of Wisconsin. Our governor uh, uh, ended up shutting down all the state parks. I mean, we're, we were quarantined to our home and I thought, well, at least we can go outside. And then he said, nope, all the state parks are closed. And it was because they didn't have staff to clean the bathrooms and take out the garbage and it was overwhelming. But I'm like, um, I'm pretty sure Jesus would be okay with me breaking the law. And so I, my wife and I, there is a state park in the center of Wisconsin I'd never been to. It's the most visited state park in the state. It's called Devil's Lake State Park. It's this beautiful glacially carved uh, valley with this beautiful lake in the middle of it with huge cliffs that drop down into this lake surrounded by a hardwood forest. You'd never guess it was in the state of Wisconsin because it seems very rugged. And I thought, well, you know, it's maybe three weeks into COVID. I knew the park was going to be empty. And I thought, hey, babe, let's go for a drive. 
And so my wife and I, we drove out to central Wisconsin, and, uh, and there were still park rangers. They lied to us. There were still dudes, like, in marked vehicles driving around the perimeter, so it felt like I was, doing, I was being, like, naughty, and I kind of liked it. It was kind of fun. And so we parked on the side road, and Becky and I are, like, creeping along and, like, waiting in the ditch for the cars to go by. Then we run across the road and jump into the state forest and run until they can't see us. And we spent the next six hours just wandering around this stunningly beautiful park with hardwood forests and deep cliffs and lakes. And... Um, and it was amazing, and there was not another soul there. It was a perfect time to break the law. I, I loved it. But you know what? Like, I, I'm a rule follower by nature, and the whole time we were there, I had this nagging, this drone in the back of my mind uh, that I didn't belong. I shouldn't be there. I was hiding behind trees. Every time I came around a corner, I was worried I was going to be confronted by a park ranger. I was worried, and it was very difficult for me to fully enjoy my experience in that park. Now, had we been invited, had we been granted uh, you know, legal access to the park, had a park ranger met us there and, and granted us access, and had he or she served as a, a tour guide, it would have been an entirely different experience for us. It would have been carefree and fun. I would have been able to enjoy with confidence the beauty of the park. Our text today talks about confidence. It tells us that we have confidence to enter the holy places. And yet, as we've been unpacking this idea over several weeks, I get the nagging sense that many of us, like Becky and I at Devil's Lake, we have this nagging sense that we don't belong in this place, the sacred place of invitation that we have in Christ. I have the sense that many Christians, though they know they've been forgiven in Christ, there's this nagging sense that they don't belong, that they haven't really been invited. And so we have this tendency also to hide, to have a, a drone in the back of our life that's, that's condemning words over us. We worry. Today in our passage, we hear the invitation of God in Christ to confidently enter the holy places carefree, to worship, and to encourage one another to do the same. As I stated last week, we wrapped up this previous section that really served as an epilogue to, section, to, the, to the book chapter 3 through chapter 10. If you were here last week, we looked at verses 1 through 18 in chapter 10, and we saw the, the, the kind of the perfect sufficiency of Christ. This, these 18 verses preceding our passage today were like an epilogue to, to all that we had learned up to that point. The author told us the, uh, of the shortcomings of the Old Covenant. It made it inadequate. The author reminded us of the sacrifice of Christ. Uh, the New Covenant sacrifice canceled out the Old Covenant. The author reminded us last week of the superiority of Christ's uh, sacrifice, which brings true sanctification, true purity from the inside out. The author reminded us last week of the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice and that you and I can have confidence in the grace of God and the forgiveness he offers us. And then now we get to look at all these beautiful, applicable exhortations from the author. Like I said earlier, it was doctrine for ten and a half chapters. Now for the last three and a half, it's duty. It was creed for the first ten and a half chapters. For the next three and a half, it's conduct. It was precept. Now it's practice. It was instruction. Now it's exhortation. It was, it was explanation, and now it's application. And I'm so ready for this. When I was studying this text last week and this week, I was just shouting. Like, I've been waiting to just have like a, a low-hanging fruit, easy-to-preach passage because Hebrews has been difficult to preach. I'm like, yes, I can just tell people what to do. It's going to be awesome. But there's more to it than that. There's more to it than that. Chapters and chapters of explanation. He now draws 
the most logical and fundamental conclusion after all ten and a half chapters of masterfully painting a picture of the superiority and sufficiency of Jesus. The most practical application, brothers and sisters, we have confidence because of that Christ to enter the holy places. To confidently enter. In that original audience's mind, these former men and women who practiced Judaism, who'd come to faith in Christ, the concept of just confidently approaching the throne of God was unheard of. The idea of approaching the throne of God was filled with fear and trembling. The high priest would enter but once a year with a rope tied around his waist or his ankle in case he dropped dead in the presence of God so they could drag his lifeless corpse underneath the curtain. The idea of confidently approaching God was revolutionary to these people. But because of Christ, a fundamental shift has occurred. And we can now confidently enter the holy places. And Jesus himself was the difference maker. Look at verse 19, the second half. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. The shed blood and death of Jesus Christ has granted access to the holy places, to the very presence of God. Then we have verse 20. Brothers and sisters, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, verse 20, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Or as another translation puts it, we now come to God by the new and living way. Christ made this way for us. He opened that curtain, which was his own body. And as we hear that language of the curtain, we know it's the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place, the place where God dwelled, and and, and no one can have access to that place. But when Christ hung on the cross, Matthew 27, the earth shakes, the rocks split, and the curtain of the temple is torn in two, and access is made possible through the shed blood and death of Jesus. Though the idea of approaching God was unheard of, it's now being invited. I mean, access to God in the Old Testament, one of the things I've learned as we've studied the book of Hebrews is we get this really neat depiction of Old old Covenant practice is the way in which worship was so limited. God was always just out of reach. You could never quite access God. Worshippers were always on the outside looking in. And yet here I imagine this first audience who first received this letter some 2,000 years ago. They were a beleaguered bunch of believers, tired and worn out on the verge of giving up. And his letter is written to tell them to persevere. And the author has been continually reminding them as this letter is being read of the incredible access they have to the holy place. The curtain has been torn. I think of what he said in chapter 4, verse 16. Let us with confidence then draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. It is in and through the person and work of Jesus that access to God has been granted. Access to the holy places. Look at verse 21. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, dot, dot, dot. So our high priest, Jesus, he not only offers us access to God, he also is our advocate. He intercedes for us, as the author has said in previous places. He mediates a better covenant for us. So he's not just saying, hey, come on in. He's actually in there with us, advocating as our high priest on our behalf, continually. In fact, the text says he's now ascended at the right hand of the Father, mediating, interceding for us right now as we gather in this place. He is our advocate. So I want to tell a story. I wrote this story, so if it's not any good, don't tell me later. Imagine a story with me, if you would. Imagine you're somewhere in a foreign land, let's say an exotic place in Europe. 
an unknown, unheralded, unknown place, but a vastly wealthy kingdom. You find yourself outside this grand, beautiful palace where the powerful king of the kingdom dwells. You and countless others are there to look on at this beautiful palace, but you're standing back behind the metal barriers and brick barriers, looking at awe through the fence at this gleaming palace with its moat and its spires that stretch into the sky, gleaming in the sun. Surrounding the palace are armed guards, multiple armed guards, ready and willing to do violence to anyone who dares breach this fence and this barrier. And justifiably so. This is a sacred place. You don't belong there. This home is the place of the king. It's not a place for commoners. It's for him and his royal family. Now you, in preparation of going to this exotic place, you've read stories, you've, you've seen photographs, you've heard about the inside of this opulent palace, but no one really, no commoners have ever really been there. It's sort of steeped in mystery. As you stand out watching, looking, peering over the fence, suddenly you see the door crack open a long ways off between some flowered bushes. The door cracks open and unmistakably standing in the shadow of the door is a man wearing a crown. It's the king himself. Immediately the entire crowd falls to their knees in reverence. This king slowly walks out over the footbridge across the moat. The entire time, as you're on your knees, you're looking up, you can see he's walking toward you, and you're trying to discern, like, why is he walking toward me? As he gets closer, you can see the white of his eyes, you realize he's staring directly at you. You divert your eyes, you lay on your face, you can't believe what's about to happen. And all of a sudden, you feel a warm hand on your shoulder. Timidly, you lift your eyes, and you look up, with the sun shining behind him and his crown is the the face of a smiling king. His warm hand is on your shoulder. He extends his hand. You put your hand in his. He lifts you up from your knees to your feet. Very gently and graciously, he walks you through the barrier, past the guards who have now put their weapons down. He walks you across the footbridge over the moat, up to the grand doors leading into the palace. The entire time, you're feeling afraid. You're timid, like you don't belong. Like you're in some place you should not be. Your hand is trembling, and you feel the squeeze of the king, and you look up to his face. He's looking back at you with a smile, and you realize that you're with the king. And he and only he can uniquely bring you into that palace. He and only he has the authority to grant you access. The doors swing open. You step into this overwhelmingly beautiful place. But even as you walk through the threshold and you walk into the foyer and you walk into these 30-foot ceilings, this cathedral-like palace, you suddenly find yourself again feeling waves of insecurity and unworthiness. As you walk through the palace, you find yourself at another set of beautiful doors. And as the doors swing open, elevated in a pedestal in the middle of this brightly lit room is, is is the unmistakable sight of the throne. On the left side of the throne is the queen. On the right side is the rest of the royal family. And massive waves of insecurity and fear wash over you. You're you're beginning to buckle. You don't belong in this place. The king squeezes your hand a second time. You look at him and he smiles and he says, Fear not, you're with me. I've granted you access into my palace. And now I'm going to be your advocate before the throne. Follow me. And he leads you into the throne room, to the very throne itself. And now you see him with a smile on his face. You see the warm faces of the royal family smiling back at you because you have an advocate. As you look around, you realize it's because of him. It's because of this kind king who met you where you were that you can confidently enter that place. 
You see, with Christ, we have not just access, but we have an advocate. He is for you. And if he is for you, who can be against you? Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You have this as a sure and steadfast anchor to the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. You see, ours is a Christ-focused confidence. It's anchored in the access and advocacy that Jesus Christ uniquely offers to us. It's not a self-focused confidence. Other world religions will sell you a self-focused confidence in your practice of worship. This is not a self-focused confidence. It is a Christ-focused confidence, and our trust is entirely in him. How's my story? Is it okay? All right. I used to have daughters. You know, I used to tell my daughters stories of kings and palaces. Got some practice. Listen to what one author encouraged me to do this week. He writes, see this access and advocacy together. See them together. The dual source of our confidence is the access and advocacy of Christ. See what strength they bring. Jesus is both the curtain, our access, and the priest, our advocate. His torn body and shed blood provide our access to the presence of the Father. And in our access, he is our perpetual priestly advocate. If you have a Bible, turn to Romans chapter 8 real quick. I want to read to you verses 31 through 34. If you don't have a Bible, that's fine. I just want you to sit under these words for a sec. I just want to read these, these four verses, 31 through 34. The banner on your Bible should say, God's everlasting love. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, he was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. You see, God not only showers us with his grace, but he shared his victory with us as well. This week I was talking to my son. He goes to OIT and he's a part of a campus ministry called CF. And he said this week uh, in his campus gathering on Thursday night, two kids came that had not been there previously. There were kids he'd seen around campus. And, and after CF, after the, the instruction, he was chatting with these two, these two visitors. And there was a couple of his Christian friends that were flanking him. And these, these two visitors were kids who'd been raised in Christian homes, young men who'd been raised in Christian homes, but had sort of abandoned the faith. But because of circumstances in their life, they were spurred to consider Christianity. And so they found themselves wandering into this CF fellowship because some Christian students had invited them. And the conversation they had, Elijah said, was amazing. It was a doctrinally deep conversation, which my son loves. But then he said, well, the conversation ended up in this place where, like, he said, I realized, Dad, there's something that we do as Christians. And he couldn't quite put his finger on it. And I, and I still don't know if I have my finger on it either. But he's like, we like to revel in our sin sometimes. Like, how broken we are. How sinful we are. Oh, I'm just a dirty sinner. Just a dirty sinner. I'm just a dirty sinner. I'm just a dirty sinner. And we keep it ever before us. Though we're forgiven, and we know we're forgiven in Christ, we sort of just wear our, the, the reality of our sin on us. And he's like, but aren't we victorious in Christ? 
Like, hasn't he overcome sin? Like, when do we just stand up and shout yes to the victory of Christ over our sin that we've been, we've been, we've been redeemed, we've been, we've been adopted into the family of God, our feet have been set on a rock, we have a, a new identity, we have an eternal hope. Like, he's like, I, I just think we need to, that, that message needs to be shared more in the church, Dad. I agree, Eli. Thank you for encouraging me this week to, to do just that. We may be defeated for a moment, but evil will never prevail. Knowing all these things, Paul goes on in Romans 8.37, knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Then the church father, I just stumbled onto this, this interesting historical bit of information. There was a church father by the name of John Chrysostom. You probably have heard of him. And at one point in his life, he was brought before the Roman emperor. The emperor famously threatened him with, with banishment if, if, if he remained a Christian. And uh, Chrysostom famously replied, You cannot banish me, for this world is my father's house. To which the emperor replies, But I'll slay you. No, you cannot, said the noble champion of the faith. For if my, if my life is hid with Christ in God, well, I'll take away your treasure, replied the emperor. No, but you cannot, for my treasure is in heaven, and my heart is there also. But I will drive you away from man, and you shall have no friends left. No, you cannot. For I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you, for there is nothing that you can do to hurt me. That is a Christ-focused confidence. Ours is a Christ-focused confidence. And it's with that comprehensive confidence that the author gives us three exhortations, three applications, three practices, three ways to conduct ourselves as a church in light of that confidence that he gives us through his, through his, his uh, invitation, the access he gives us, and the advocacy he operates on our behalf. We, we have this grand Christ-focused confidence. And so here's the three applications of the text. Number one, draw near to God. With Christ-focused confidence, verse 22 tells us to draw near to God. Look at verse 22. And if you're a pencil person or a highlighter person, I encourage you to underline the first four words of verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, how many times have we heard the phrase draw near in Hebrews? Many. It's a mega theme. It's one of those threads you can pull and it takes us through the entire book. This idea of drawing near to God is all throughout the book. Chapter 4, verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Chapter 7, verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Chapter 7, verse 25, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Chapter 11, verse 6, without faith it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Our passage today tells us, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. As we've learned in previous teachings, this idea of sprinkled blood is a part of the old covenant. Our text today says, let us draw near with a, full, with a true heart and a full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. 
in the Old Covenant, as we've learned in previous teachings, a priest preparing for his priestly duty would have been sprinkled with blood. And, and when the Old Covenant began, the people of God were sprinkled with blood, and the instruments used in temple worship were sprinkled with blood, all, blood, all as a part of consecration before worship. But, but with the New Covenant, the better covenant that Jesus brings, when people come to faith in Christ, their hearts are inwardly sprinkled with the blood of Christ. It's the blood of Christ which brings cleansing of a guilty conscience, true purity, inner purity, comprehensive purity, not just an external cleansing. That's why in chapter 9, verse 14, the author said, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish, how much more will his blood purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now I think about those people who first received this letter. Those weary sick, tired, beat-up Christians. I, I imagine them, you know, having been raised under the Old Covenant where access to God was always limited, having been raised under the Old Covenant where their advocate, a human priest, was deeply limited, where their guilty conscience was always just lingering, never appeased, always there, never dealt with, never finished. But now as they sit tired under the reading of this letter in a small house church, God knows where, and as these powerful and truthful words are read over them, and as the Holy Spirit gives them understanding, they're reminded of the gospel that they believed. That the guilt, the shame were completely gone. Their conscience could rest easy. They had received an inward purity. And as they sat there, they would have been reminded of their Christian baptism. The author says he reminds them of their, their bodies that were washed with pure water. This, 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 this all-important ordinance of Christ, this outward visible sign of an inward sprinkling that each one of them had experienced upon conversion. What an invitation. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. What's a true heart? True heart is symbolic of the entire inner world of the worshiper. Because of the cleansing work of Jesus Christ by the shedding of his blood, the worshiper can have full assurance of faith. That goes right hand in hand with the word confidence. Because with an undefiled heart, they can, they can now approach. This is a direct appeal to those who draw near to God. Do not have divided loyalties, worshiper. Do not have mixed motives when you come to worship. Have no sense of wavering or drift in your spirit. With singular, hopeful confidence, draw near with sincere love to the one who loves you. In other words, the entirety of the worshiper is to be present in the act of worshiping. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty keyed in to people's listening skills. Part of my job is listening to people. And so I try to be very mindful when I'm in a pastoral counseling session or when I'm meeting someone for the first time. I try not to fold my arms I try not to turn away. I try to lean forward. I try to open my posture. I try to make eye contact. I try to respond with nonverbals. Not to, not to manipulate anybody. I just want them to know I care. And I'm listening and I want to hear what they have to say. I'm sure you've been a part of a conversation where that wasn't the case. Have you ever been sat down with somebody trying to have a conversation with them and they're kind of, their eyes are wandering and they're yawning and they're looking at their watch or they're looking at their phone and when you finally give... They, they, when they finally speak, it has nothing to do with what you've just shared. They're utterly distracted. Their mind's in another place. Do you imagine how God would feel when we come to him in prayer or we come to him in worship and we're looking at our watch 
We're yawning. We're taking our eyes off of him. This is a picture of, of a singularly focused worship. I go back to that conversation Jesus had with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. And they were having a conversation about living water, about her husbands. It's a very well-known passage. And, but then the conversation went to worship, if you remember. Because the Samaritans, they worshipped in a different place on a different mountain. And the Jews, they worshipped in Jerusalem on, on Temple Mount. And they're having a conversation about where do you worship? We worship here, you worship there, which is the true religion. And then Jesus says this famous statement in John four twenty three. He says to this woman, hey, listen. He says, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. The idea here that Jesus is, is conveying to this woman is that God desires worshipers whose entire human spirit is engaged in worship, in spirit and in truth. And so what does that, that kind of worship look like? What, what's the life, what does the life look like of the person whose heart posture is one of a singular focus? To someone who, who, who keeps their eyes affixed on Christ to draw near to him. What does it look like in this place on a Sunday morning? What does it look like when we sit under the preached word? When we sit under the preached word on a Sunday morning, though every human preacher is deeply flawed, all of us are, we all have our issues and our tics and things you don't like, is there a desire to, to pick through that and hear the words of God wash over you? To allow the truth of God's word as it's preached to penetrate your heart and to open up your eyes and to in increase your worship? When we stand and, and, we're, and we're listening to the songs being sung and we're looking at the lyrics on the screen, are we just looking at the lyrics of those words as, as prompts to better align our hearts to exalt Christ with a singular focus? Regardless if the person on stage sings a flat note every now and again or the song is an old song that you've heard a hundred times or it's a song you don't particularly care for. I think about it when it comes to prayer. I think about this, this drawing near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith and prayer. This Christ-focused confidence, holding nothing back, pouring the entirety of my soul before God, trusting entirely in his forgiving grace and in, in his sovereign goodness over my life. I think about that in our prayer life. Coming before him, holding nothing back in worship, nothing back in confession, nothing back in petition, pouring our soul in a very genuine and real and honest way because he knows what's going on in our inner world anyways. And then confidently trusting in his will. So the first thing we see is with a Christ-focused confidence, we are to draw near. Look at verse 23 with me. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Underline, let us hold fast let us hold fast. There's three let us statements. This is the second in our text today. And so here's the second thing I would encourage you to write down. With a Christ-focused confidence, hold fast to hope. With a Christ-focused confidence, hold fast to hope. As we draw near to God, we have proximity with God. We grow in confidence with who he is, and we learn to hold fast to him. The drawing near creates the proximity to hold fast to him. And could it be that, that the true heart that, that draws near to God. There's that deeply relational aspect of being intimate with God. And the more we know him and the more we experience him and the more we, we journey with him and the more we experience God's presence in our times of sorrow, the more intimately we come to understand him, the greater our desire then becomes to just hold on to him. 
As we look at the world around us and as it shakes and as it gets turned upside down and as morality is called right and right is called immoral, as we see uh, just the brokenness of our world and everything that we know has been shaken, don't you think the more we draw near to him, the more we see his immutable, unchanging, rock-like personality, his his attribute that makes him the God of of, of the universe, the the king of kings, he spoke everything into existence, he predates creation, he's going to be, he's the eternal king for all of eternity. As we, as we begin to understand that about him and, and his intimate love for us in Christ, don't you think you just naturally arrive at a place that says, is there anything else to cling to? Is there anything else in the, that I should grab onto, to look to, draw to? Is there anything else in the world? I mean, the author at the end of Hebrews, he, he, chapter 12, he, he says, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. His kingdom cannot be shaken. And so I think this This holding fast is just a natural, logical next step to drawing near to God. I was thinking about, I was talking yesterday, we had the lead guys and we met to go over pastoral leadership and just leadership in ministry. And we talked about leadership from a bunch of different angles in the hub yesterday. And and Thomas, one of the students, was asking me about the role of suffering in, in, in leadership. When you're in ministry leadership, how do you deal with suffering and how do you help people view suffering as a means of God's shaping grace? And we had a conversation about that, but I was, I was telling him, you know, I was, I was kind of just real time thinking about the hard part of ministry. For me, like one of the things I do, as you know, is I'm a chaplain for the police department. And, and so part of that job is, as I've shared previously, is I, I get asked by the police department in certain occasions, if there's a, a, an exceedingly difficult scene a suicide or a sudden death, uh, and, and the family just needs support, they'll call me. And I'll go to the house or the apartment or, or wherever it takes place. And, and, and I was reflecting on a couple different recent uh, chaplain scenes I've been to where, where the families knew Jesus and the families didn't know Jesus. And the most recent call I went on, I won't tell you the details, it was horrible. And this person I was ministering to, this person in the family, they had a, a Christian faith. And so as awful and as horrible and as earth-shattering as this sudden and horrific death was, I was able to pray with this family. I was able to say, hey, there's one who's, not, who's unshakable who you can cling to. Your world is shaken right now. But there's one you can cling to who, who, is not, who does not sh- shake. He is immovable. Draw near to him. Hold fast to him. He's your hope. And then I think about the times, because it's a religiously pluralistic environment. I can't, I can't just start to proselytize. I have, there's limitations to what I can do as a, as a, as a, as a chaplain. And so sometimes I step into homes where there's a body in the room and there's a family grieving and they, they stiff-arm the Christian faith or they have, they have no interest. And I am so rudderless. I, I'm looking at my tool belt for something, for anything, and I got nothing. And it's hopeless. Nothing to cling to in the midst of life's most stark tragedies. So grateful that we have a Savior who we can not only confidently um, focus our lives on. We can not only confidently draw near to him, we have the privilege of being able to hold fast to him, to cling to him. This is our ultimate hope. And so with a Christ-centered confidence, the author tells us to, to draw near to God, to hold fast to hope. And lastly, verses 24 and 25, they, they go together. Verse 25 just sort of carries out the thought of verse 24. Let me read the whole passage one more time for us in its entirety. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he prepared for us through the curtain, 
that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, we have access and an advocate. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled from clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Finally, I encourage you to underline the phrase, let us consider how to stir one another up. And the final point of the sermon is with Christ-centered folk, or Christ-focused confidence, stir up one another. With Christ-focused confidence, stir up one another. And he gives us all these different qualifiers, these different nuanced insights into what this looks like. What are we to stir one another up into? Well, to love and good works. What are, we, what are we to stir one another up into? Well, we're, we're to use it as a means of encouraging one another. And you know what's really interesting about stirring one another up? What's really interesting about love and good works and what's really interesting about encouraging one another is it cannot be done in isolation. It's a communal practice. That's why the author says, do not neglect to meet together even though some have. Think of the biblical metaphors that we have in the New Testament for the body of Christ, for, for the church. But, you know, the local expression of the church, the global church, but especially the local expression. There, there's like six metaphors that they, we see in Scripture. The, the church is a body. It's made up of many different members that comprise the one body of Christ. That's one metaphor. The church is the bride of Christ. It's another one. The church is the family of God. And another one says it's the household of God. It's God's house. Another metaphor says the church is the temple of God built with living stones with Christ as the foundation and the cornerstone indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So as you think about those metaphors for the body of Christ, for the church, just ask yourself, when's the last time you saw a healthy body comprised of one member? When's the last time you saw a liver just killing it in life? When's the last time you saw a marriage that was happy and healthy comprised of one person? When's the last time you saw a temple that was built out of one singular stone? When's the last time you saw a household, a joyous household comprised of one person? When's the last time you saw a family of just one? I think a better way to think about this is this way. I'm sure some of you can, can identify. Have you seen the dreadful damage to a body when one of its members is cut off? Have you seen the damage to a family or to a marriage when one of the spouses take off? Have you seen the destruction to a building when a vital stone is suddenly removed? Have you seen the trauma to a household or to a family when one member of that family abandons the others? The point is that we need each other. God has formed us and fashioned us and created us as a body to be interdependent on one another. We need one another. And by meeting together, by stirring one another up to love and good works, we're, we're, we're doing that work of encouraging one another. That, that, that's exor- that, that, what we're called to exercise is love. We're, we're to be stirred up by one another. Those good works that we're called to do, they're stirred up by others in our life who, who help us and encourage us to do those good works. The, the love uh, and good works that, that we're supposed to be exercising it's carried out in the context of community within the confines of relationship. And if the highest aim of, of the Christian is love, 
If the church is to be distinguished among all other people on the earth by our love, by the way we give and receive love to one another, as Jesus said in John 13, 35, if this is the one way that the world will know that we are his by our love for one another, how do we develop and grow our capacity to love? We meet together. We sharpen one another. We encourage one another. We stir one another up to love and good works. That's how. Kent Hughes says, one theoretically may be able to develop faith and hope while alone, though even that's questionable, but not love. Developing love is absolutely a a communal activity of the church. And we're not to put this off. The very last words of our passage, and all the more as you see the day drawing near, we are not promised tomorrow. We're not promised. There's an urgency to this command to, 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 to draw near, to hold fast, and to stir one another up. And so with Christ-focused confidence, church, let's draw near to God. With a Christ-focused confidence, church, let's just hold fast to our hope. Let's, and let's, church, let's, with Christ-focused confidence, let's stir one another up. Let's encourage one another to, to, to love and good works. Let's, let's not neglect to meet together. Corporately on Sunday or over lunch after church or in our small group or in women's Bible study or by phone. Let's, let's, let's live out this life together in community with one another. If you look at that word in verse 28, stir, let us consider how to stir one another up. Other translations use the word spur or, or provoke or, or arouse. It's a, and it's an extremely strong word. It means to incite or to irritate. It's a, strong, it's a strong word. It means a sudden convulsion or a violent emotion. Other uses of this word, this Greek word, I'll try to pronounce it, usmas. Other uses of this word in the New Testament are exclusively not pleasant. When Paul and Barnabas had their, their, their disagreement, their sharp disagreement, that word is, is the word used here, to spur one another on. But it's pleasant here. This strong encouragement of the author to the church, is, it's a pleasant sense of prodding. We're to, we're to prod, spur, arouse, violently shake, whatever it is, our brothers and sisters toward love and good works. And so today, church, I'd just like to be a pleasant irritant. I would like to provoke you pleasantly and with love in my heart. I hope that you would be a a pleasant irritant in my life. I need you to spur me on. Stir me up. Arouse in me. I'll arouse in you. We'll incite one another. We'll irritate one another to love and good works. Because with Christ-focused confidence, because of the access that he grants us to the throne, because of the way he is advocating on our behalf to the Father right now, we are invited, we are implored, we are encouraged to draw near to God, to hold fast to hope, and to stir one another up. Pray with me. Father, I'm grateful for the opportunity you give us today to gather here and, and sit under this truth. And God, as I even consider the encouragement of Fred earlier, for us as a body to, to, to lean into zeal for the work you've given us, God, I pray that, that, that we would do that, God, that as we, as we focus on on you, our, our, great, our great advocate, as we focus on, on the gospel and, and the, the new covenant, the better covenant that grants us access to the holy places and that we, we can confidently draw near to the throne of grace, these amazing truths of the gospel, God, I pray that by your spirit you would stir in us, God, and that we would be a people who would, who would uh, God, who would just draw near to you daily. God, that we wouldn't be distracted. We wouldn't look to our left and to our right. We would hold fast to you with with a singular focus, God. 
and with joy in our hearts about what you're doing in our life and around us. God, I pray that as we, as we draw near and hold fast, God, that we would, we would just look to our left and look to our right within the body of Christ and we would, we would stir one another up to love and good works. God, with urgency, that we would encourage one another and that you would grow our body, not just like in self-congratulations and, and, and slaps on the back and attaboys, but God, we would, God, you would use the encouragement of our brothers and sisters around us, God, to, to call us to greater levels of obedience, greater levels of sacrifice, greater love for the lost, a greater burden for the hurting in our midst, a greater passion to grow in Christ's likeness, a desire to be used for you, God, but you enable us to be a family that does that. For your glory. For these things in Jesus' name.